0: think my friend Matt's going to come on up. And Matt, can I just say the flannel is rocking this morning? I feel like you've come to the mountains for real when you start wearing flannel shirts. Am I right? Yeah. It's a really nice looking flannel. So I think you should, you know, have fun. We Can you hear me? So a shout-out to Blair Bailey, our mutual friend, for supplying me with the flannel. Uh, He drove with me to Atlanta, and by drove with me, he drove and I rode with him as we returned the inflatable from the trick-or-treat the night before. And uh, uh, he met me with a box of flannel. And uh, so this was one of those. Uh, One other thing I'd like to do before we get started today is I just want to acknowledge a resource that I've found to be very helpful in this sermon and in the preparation for all the sermons I've been doing as we've been kind of going through the story of God as told by a tax collector named Matthew. And uh, that's this uh, commentary. It's the Brazos Theological Commentary on the book of Matthew. And it's by a, a really esteemed um thinker and scholar and biblical teacher Stanley Hauerwas. It's a great name. But uh if you want to go deeper, if you want to look at uh Matthew uh through a unique perspective and kind of give yourself a follow-up to the series that we're doing as we're starting to kinda wind down the book of Matthew over the next, you know, two years, um <laughs> then you may want to pick <laughs> this up. Uh, So let me begin with a prayer again uh, by another uh, of the spiritual giants in my life, Walter Brueggemann. And uh, this is his prayer, and I want to borrow it. I think it's helpful for what we're speaking on today. Dear God, you evoke in us responses to your hidden rule. We sing your praises, we worship and adore you, we give our lives over to you in gratitude and in obedience as we are able. You evoke in us responses toward our neighbor. Your great care for us causes us to care for the world. And we resolve to talk the talk. To speak the news of your goodness, to speak the good news of your mercy, to speak the bad news of your impatience in the face of mockery. You evoke in us response toward our neighbors and we resolve to walk, walk. Not to petition your work before we have done our own work. Not to ask you for what we may do among ourselves, can do, of mercy, of compassion of forgiveness, of peace, and justice. We mark these resolves in troubled circumstances because our talk is double-tongued, because our walk is double-minded. One step towards you, two steps back in fear. One utterance towards you, two utterances, reneging in duplicity. Given all of that, we sing your praise. We worship and adore you give our lives over to you in gratitude and in obedience as we are able. Amen. Amen. Good morning. My name is Matt and I am a recovering Pharisee. These words were the words that I had spoken to begin my introductory speech in the aptly named course speech 101 at the college I attended. Over the next few minutes, I went on to describe to my classmates that my desire for control, for a certainty that came with a religious list of do's and don'ts, for the gratification that was a result of feeling morally and religiously superior to everyone around me had left me prideful, afraid, and hollow inside. This was a big awakening and realization for a young man away from home for the first time. It was early in my college career, but I had been purposeful in whom I had chosen to hang around. I tried on friends for the first few weeks to see if they had the possibility of being the fortress friends that my summer camp speaker had urged us all to find. Friends who would strengthen my walk with Jesus. There was Ben, a mammoth individual and human, who was an all-state center in West Virginia, and he had eschewed football in college to be a pastor. There was Derek, who would meet with me at 5.30 in the morning, two hours before our first class, for prayer and Bible study so that we could bathe our campus in intercession There was Walt, who was quiet most of the time, but who had a tendency to turn zealous and preachy when discussing reaching out to wayward teenagers with the good news of Jesus. And there was Jesse, the son of an evangelist in Pittsburgh who looked way too cool to be a devoted Christian, (laughs) but who surprised me time and time again with his goodness and his gentleness and his humility. These are the guys that I would spend the majority of my first year of undergrad with. And it was one afternoon in Derek and Ben's room while we were playing darts and listening to some music that I came to a sobering realization that not all was well with me. Not all was right. that I was indeed a Pharisee, a hypocrite. This awakening wasn't the result of a theological discussion or prayer meeting. Instead, it was instigated by the playing of a bootlegged tape recording. If the teens were here, I would have to spend a lot of time explaining what a tape was. <laughs> but a bootlegged tape recording of a small band out of South Carolina. You see, Hootie and the Blowfish helped me to see the real Jesus. As I listened to hold my hand, let her cry, only want to be with you my favorite time, over that day and the many days to come, I realized that my eternal soul was not in jeopardy for listening to secular music. Now, this may not seem like a big deal from you. What in the world are you even talking about? But from someone coming from a very fundamentalist strain... <laughs> Of evangelical Christianity. The categories of sacred. And secular. Were a most. Amongst the most important concepts. To employ when seeking to please. A God of righteousness. Holiness and justice. See my youth group. We were really big into. Christian music. Um. Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith. Anybody remember those guys from back in the day? Yeah, those were a little too worldly for us. (laughs) My youth pastor was really big into heavy metal Christian uh, music. And occasionally DC talk. I don't know why DC talk was okay. But we listened to to people who were almost militant for the faith. To do otherwise, because we were teens and music was such an important part of our lives, to listen to anything that was secular, that did not come from family Christian or stamped with that Dove award-winning artist label. This is total insider speaking. I apologize if this is not the world from which you come. But it was to invite Satan into our lives. You see, the world that I grew up in, in Christianity, this stream, some have called it toxic evangelicalism, others have called it holy rollers. What I grew up in was predicated upon this fact of who was in and who was out, depending upon boundary markers that were certain behaviors, clothing choices, music groups you listened to, whether or not you engaged in the occasional chew of tobacco or not, Nicole's not here, so I won't say anything. That's an inside joke for my wife. So your boundaries, if you come from a similar world or not, may not be the style of music you ingest but rather what denomination you belong to or not. What preacher or teacher you follow. Whether you're a Calvin or an Arminianist, whether you are convinced that any day now Jesus could come back, or whether or not you believe that we are to put God's kingdom here on this earth with the help of the Holy Spirit. It may even be whether or not you enjoy a craft beer or find alcohol in all of its forms to be demonic snares of the enemy. So this morning I come to you with a particular passage that has been allotted to me from this story of God told from a tax collector named Matthew's vantage point. I come to you as one still recovering from a faith like the one Jesus describes in this passage with the intent of exploring these woes, these proclamations of judgment that Christ levels against the Pharisees. Exploring these woes as a means of self-examination for us all. My hope is that we would see not only the effects of hypocrisy on our lives, but also catch a glimpse of the motivation for living this way, Because if we're aware of why we may lapse into hypocrisy, perhaps we can choose the alternative lives of grace and freedom that Jesus has to offer us. The passage is from chapter 23 of Matthew. Jody took us through the end of 22 last week, and we talked about the Pharisees and the scribes approaching Jesus with a series of questions and Jesus answering with both the greatest commandment and then a acknowledgement that he himself was the Messiah. That's how I read that. And Jesus then begins to go, some could say, on the offensive. And he does this with a, Rather lengthy warning against hypocrisy. And then he levels a series of woes. Woe to you. Woe to those who. To the Pharisees. And so I want to start with the first 12 verses. And rather than reading the whole passage along. I'm going to read chunks of it and kind of serve hopefully as a field guide through the scriptures this morning. Making some observations and pointing out some things. And then also asking us some important questions. But chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to his crowd and to his disciples. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. These are implementations and things that folks would add to their dress to show their devotion to scripture, to the Torah, to the Tanakh, and to the Jewish Bible. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth... Father, for you have one Father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Some commentators in preparing for this are so taken aback by the vehemence of his attack on the scribes and Pharisees But they wonder if Jesus could actually have pronounced these judgments against the scribes and Pharisees at all. It is often assumed that Jesus' judgmental tone and his unforgiving judgments are incompatible with the great commandment. But even more at odds with the admonition that we should love our enemies found in Matthew chapter 5. But the love that Jesus preaches is not incompatible with judgment and in particular judgment on hypocrisy. Faithful love, if it is faithful, is judgment. I'm going to stop right here before we move forward into these verses. I want to share with you a little equation. Now, most of what I'm going to talk about when talking about this is coming against formulaic faith. A formulaic faith that is one where we just... Color by the numbers or connect the dots that are there for us. Observe the do's and don'ts that are stamped with approval by the religious elites. And therefore we have a spacious, generous, abundant, loving life with Christ and others. And so I'm against the formulaic faith, but I do want to offer you a formula. (laughs) It's kind of ironic, paradoxical. This comes from a mentor of mine, an old boss of mine and Jody and Jeff's. His name is Dr. Michael Rakes, and he taught it this way. Caring plus confrontation equals growth. I just want to get out of the way here that we're talking about, could Jesus have said this or not, is that Jesus was not a manby pamby Jesus was not, uh, in, in theological terms, a wuss. Uh, Jesus was meek, which means power under control. And if we're going to live as brothers and sisters, true brothers and sisters, with a faithful love, then that love is a corrective love. But it's always a love that comes with two parts. The first part is caring. What we say must be done in love. My friend Blair brought me this flannel shirt. It is an example for me in the fact that oftentimes he will confront an individual, but his confrontation of that individual will often follow months of having prayed about the situation before actually confronting them. Because the truth is, is, if I'm confronting you out of my need to feel right, or out of uh, my need to feel superior, or just to call you on the carpet so that I can feel good in the moment, it's not actually directed by love, and therefore it will be, as Scripture says, an unpleasant sound as though gongs were being put in our ears. So there must be love, but love is not a sloppy love. I know we sing the song like a sloppy wet kiss, heaven meets earth, and that's a metaphor and that's kind of cool if you're 14 and or if you're into sloppy kisses. Um, it may be your thing. Uh, no, no judgment on that here. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, love is not sloppy. Love, when uh, conf- Confrontation, when rooted in love and care and concern, says that you and I need to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. I should be able, out of a seat of love, to truly confront you. And you do the same to me. So love is not an everything goes. Nor is it a a judgmental keeping of the list. It is true growth that only happens when both love and confrontation take place. And Jesus was a wonderful example of this. He spends all this time calling out the Pharisees. Over and over and over again, Jesus is really hard on the Pharisees. And I would say that he's hard on the Pharisees because he's speaking their language, meeting them at their level. In other words, you're going around denying people from the kingdom of God with your pronouncements and with your heavy burdens. And yet you yourself are missing the point. So I have to speak to you in the way that you're speaking so as to shake you and hopefully confront you in love. And we know that there was love there. Because we have individuals like Nicodemus who come to him and say, Master, Rabbi, teacher, we know you're from God. So that's important to note as we move into this. Jesus begins by addressing the crowds as well as disciples. For crowds to be in the plural seems to suggest that there are several factions in the temple. He begins with a list of indictments against the scribes and Pharisees that we just read here in the first 12 verses. He says they sit on Moses' seat, delivering judgments concerning the law. Now this is important to note. Jesus instructs the crowds as well as his disciples to practice what the scribes and the Pharisees teach. That he does so suggests that Jesus and the Pharisees share much in common. The problem is not what the Pharisees and scribes teach, but rather that they do not practice what they preach. See, Jesus has three major complaints against the scribes and Pharisees. First, they put heavy burdens on the shoulders of others and they are unwilling to aid the ones they so burden. This is in marked contrast to Jesus' invitation to all those who are weary and heavy heavy burdens to come to him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Second, they love to do their deeds in a way that will be seen by others. They have no sense of the importances of Jesus' admonition that we should be careful of practicing our piety before others. They fail to see that even what they even when what they do is right it is if it is done to be seen it becomes easily perverted and then finally jesus condemns the scribes and pharisees for seeking status and prestige they want to have the honored places at the banquets and the best seats in the synagogue they want to be treated with respect in the marketplaces and addressed as rabbi in short, these are people who have learned that if you are treated as if you were important, many people will assume you are important, including yourself. That is why, of course, the life of the scribes and the Pharisees, described by Jesus as self-destructive, for such a life leads to self deception And Jesus' commendations to his disciples as well as condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees presume just as he acknowledged that he is the Messiah. We've looked at this, how there are different parts within this story of God told by Matthew where Jesus makes these declarations, not overtly so, as we'll see in the Passion Week, but otherwise he makes these declarations that uh, intuit, that intimate, that he is indeed the one that Israel has been searching for. And Jesus' criticism of the scribes and Pharisees is drawn from God's gift to Israel through the law and the prophets. He's not condemning the Pharisees and scribes because they do not acknowledge that he is the Messiah. Rather, he is making clear that they cannot acknowledge that he is the Messiah because they do not live by the very law they advocate He does not, for example, condemn the wearing of the phylacteries and fringes. The externals, catch this, are not the problem, but they become a problem when they no longer serve to shape the life of prayer. Jesus always has a way of, in the great theologian philosopher, Emeril Lagasse, bam, kicking it up to another notch. Getting to the heart of the matter. Bringing the flavor and the spice that these rituals, these ingredients, these directions are meant to invoke. So let's move to the woes. In verses 13 through 15, Jesus has the following to say. Woe to you, teachers of the laws and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven to people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teacher of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Strong words. Definitely not a wuss. He begins by passing judgment on the scribes and Pharisees for the effect that their hypocrisy has on others. The kingdom of heaven is attractive and inviting, but the scribes and Pharisees present those so attracted from entering the kingdom because they do not live as if they have entered the kingdom. Jesus even suggests that the Pharisees are missionaries, but the converts they make are even more corrupt than the Pharisees themselves. Check this out. This is what Jesus is saying here. The Pharisees are hypocrites because they preach a kingdom that they themselves have not entered. See, the question for us today is, is the way you're living out the faith? Is the way that you're publicly following Jesus, is the way that you... Embody the kingdom as an ambassador for heaven. A life of formula? Of trivialness? Of dourness and sourness and anger and wrath? Or is it the life of abundance and freedom and generosity and grace that Jesus lived his life with? Are you more concerned with winning than you are with being winsome? That's what he's saying here. You're speaking a kingdom that doesn't exist in the reality of your life. Jesus then goes on in verse 16 to start another series of woes. And we'll look at verses 16 through 24 here. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound up by the oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple, swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven, swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat, a swallow, a camel. See, this series of woes condemns the scribes and Pharisees for concentrating on minutia of the law rather than on the weightier matters. For example, they tried to determine the status of oaths sworn on the gold of the sanctuary as opposed to those uh, sworn on the altar. Jesus, if you remember, has forbidden his followers to make oaths, observes that an oath should be kept no matter what part of the altar or sanctuary is used to legitimate the oath. Moreover, the scribes and Pharisees worry about whether seasonings must be tied in support of the temple, as indicated in Leviticus, yet they avoid the wettier matters of the law. Drawing on Micah 6 here, Jesus likes to quote scripture. Jesus reminds them that what the Lord requires is to do justice. And to love kindness. And to walk humbly with the Lord. Jesus does not say that they ought to neglect supporting the temple. But such support is not an alternative. Or substitute for practicing justice and mercy. You see what Jesus is saying to us here. Is the Pharisees are mistaking the minor for the major. Is your faith perfunctory? Is your faith still a checklist faith? Tithe plus come to church three times a month, volunteer certain amounts of hours. In the children's program, that gets me double. The actions that I'm doing, are they coming out of a sense of overflow? In other words, am I charitable to my neighbor? Am I loving and giving because I serve a loving and a charitable God? And as God showers blessings on me, the overflow is that to be like my heavenly father... I'm going to share and give or when you pull out that checkbook or when you come to church for your allotted day in 11th hour in Wombaland it's begrudging I'm not saying that's hard sometimes it's hard to wake up in the morning but does it ever shift <laughs> do you ever shake yourself after you've had your apple fritter are you now good to go i mean i can understand that you need an apple fritter But is it a religion that's never gotten past duty and obligation? Or is uh, is it a religion that is generous and freeing? That's the question Jesus is asking with this set of woes. The next set of woes, and we'll look at them here, verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus, in this series of woes, is moving to yet another critique of the Pharisees. He says, the vital link between worship and justice is setting the stage for the condemnation of the Pharisees, for appearing clean on the outside, but leading lives possessed by greed and self-indulgence. One must be, if you're going to be a true servant of Jesus, one must be what one appears to be. To be what we appear to be requires that our lives, our desires and habits be transformed. And such a transformation cannot be accomplished by simply copying external forms of righteousness, but must come from lives shaped by truthful worship of God. To live otherwise is to live lives of self-contradiction. One of the most important things that we know in this world, in this society, is that we must be congruent. We must be what we appear to be. To be otherwise is to be false selves instead of true selves. To invite stress, to invite discord, to invite brokenness in our psyches, in our souls, in our hearts, and in our minds. Jesus is saying, be who you are. See, one of the things I love about the Grove is that this is the type of community where you can be jacked up and everybody gets it. I mean, Jody just compared us to a Muppet. <laughs> like, that's a great thing. It? It's not easy being green, right? The idea here is that in so many religious institutions, to belong to the club, you have to act like you've got your stuff together. One of the biggest things that we all have to understand to be true followers of Jesus is we're all broken. Yeah. But we're all also created in the image of God. It's this wonderful, beautiful, terrible, messy paradox that we live in. But the worst thing we can do is pretend to be something we're not. I talked not long ago in one of these messages about what it meant to be married. And I talked about hopefully this is the kind of place if you've got stuff going on, reach out to people in responsible and appropriate ways. I mean, don't just, you know, stand up in the middle of the service and say, hey, this is happening right now and it's not good. Uh, But instead, there are people here who are waiting, who have some love and have been through similar things and are on the other side who can help you. Marriage is hard. All relationships are hard. Life is hard. Let's not pretend that we have to act like we have it all together. We're all beautiful messes being wrecked by Jesus and reassembled by Jesus. And so we have to understand that that's the kind of community and that's the kind of life that Jesus is calling us to. Lives of congruence, not self-contradiction. Indeed, Jesus suggests that the scribes and Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs that are beautiful on the outside, but are full of bones and filth. A reminder that to live a life of immorality is not to live as if we are dead, but quite literally to live a deadly life. And Jesus does not call us to death, but instead calls us to life and life abundantly. Hidden immorality draws its power and its results from death and our fear of death. The result is to impose our fear of death on others, requiring that they acknowledge our immorality as righteousness and deadly exchanges are necessary to keep up the appearances. See, in a lot of Christian churches and a lot of religious cycles and a lot of families and a lot of streams here, people live secret lives because hypocrisy comes from me winking at you and you winking at me, us all pretending we got it together, knowing you're not all together and knowing I'm not all together. But instead of living in the generative freedom that Christ gives us and living as though we're jacked up but being redeemed, we live lives of fear and secretiveness. Listen, you want to know what kills more than anything, secrets kill. That's what he means by living that life of bones on the inside. Now, not everybody can handle it. We've got all manner of people in all stages of the Christian faith here and walking with Jesus. But I can guarantee you there's very little you can say that would shock me after 20 years of ministry. But much of it I've lived. And then other parts is because I've heard crazy Jerry Springer-like stories all my life. That's what happens when you're a pastor, especially if you're a pastor in a small town. So you know what? Get over yourself. Get over the the fear that causes you to hide. Again, I'm not talking about walking down Main Street by the Everett Diner, just saying, everybody, listen up. Know what I did last Thursday? That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying, find spiritual friends whom you can share with what you've done. A little aside, this is way too long. Half the teens have already walked out, I don't know what's happening, but here's the deal. That's what I'm thinking about right now. Here's the deal. Um when we hide, it doesn't go anywhere. When we push down, it's like a garbage compactor. It just rots in a more putrid and powerful way. (laughs) Pretty soon, it's going to plumb up the pipes. And we're not going to be able to do anything about it. We've got to figure out a way to live honestly and appropriately. So that we can live lives of freedom. All right, we're landing this plane here. I like screaming hypocrites though. Notice I keep my eyes down when I do that, but verses twenty nine through thirty nine woe to you teachers of the laws and Pharisees you hypocrites you build tombs for the prophets decorate the graves of the righteous and you say if we have lived in the days of our ancestors we've not we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started ouch that was me not the text you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. And then the closing here. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Finally, Jesus condemns the scribes and Pharisees for honoring the tombs of the prophets, decorating the graves of the righteous, while believing that if they had been present, they would not have shed the blood of the prophets. Jesus makes clear that they honor the prophets only because they are dead. Jesus. Jesus prophet without honor in his own country recognizes that they are the kind of people who will kill a prophet in the name of a prophet. Jesus, like John the Baptist, identifies these killers of the dream as snakes and vipers who will not escape being sentenced to punishment prophetically Jesus tells them that he will send prophets and scribes, some of whom these Pharisees and scribes will flog and kill. They will pursue those who Jesus will send from town to town in order to shed their blood, thus standing in the history of those who murdered all the righteous, beginning with Abel and continuing to Zechariah. Jesus tells the Pharisees and scribes that this generation will do these very things. You see, the scribes and Pharisees, the hypocrites, claim to exalt God but they are the very ones who kill and pervert God and God's message our inability to live authentic lives our inability to say uh, I am a promise, I am a possibility with a great big capital P our inability to Lose grip of the control that we need to feel certain of whether we're in or out. Our inability to allow people to be who they are and where they're at, and at the same time confronting them in love so there's the actual possibility of growth occurring, (coughs) means that when we do those things, when we live saying we're a part of a kingdom, and people look at our lives and say, if that's the kingdom, I want no part of it. We're killing God's message to this world. Whenever we stop short of saying, whosoever will, we're missing the point and cutting Jesus' legs out from underneath him. So here's what I want us to do. I'd like uh, music to take place at this point. And I'd like you to listen and reflect on the words of this and ask yourself, not in a condemning way, not asking you to heap judgment upon yourself, but just hold it up as a mirror. And say, are there mid-course corrections that need to take place in my life right now? Because if you're ready to make those corrections, if you're ready for a life that's not primarily one caused and motivated by fear and control. And instead, you're willing to be authentic with all the vulnerability that that requires and causes, knowing that Jesus is there for you and you have a community that's safe here for you. And today's a perfect day for you to make some decisions. So let's listen to this, please.
1: Why do I pray? Do I pray so I can say I prayed an hour? Why do I love? Do I want you beholden to me? Why do I help Do I help to hear my name called out And why do I say Search me and know my heart, oh God See if there is any wrong thing in me All I've ever really wanted Your heart. So, why do I give? Do I give so I can get a blessing? Why do I praise? Do I praise who do the right thing? Why do I serve? Do I serve so others will serve me? And why do I? Say search me and know my heart oh God See if there is any wrong thing in me oh, Search me and know my heart, oh God See if there is any wrong thing in me All I've ever really wanted Clean hands and a pure, pure heart Search me and know my heart, oh God. See if there is any wrong thing in me. All I have ever really wanted: a clean hands and a pure, pure heart.
0: Stand with me to your feet, if you will. Hey, I, I don't think I've said that word hypocrites at so many times in my life <laughs> in one setting. But again, today, as a means of self-examination, are we truly living a generative, congruent, open, and generous walk? Hopefully, we can make some course corrections if we need to. Hopefully, if this has been where you've come from and you've known no other faith, then you can see that there's a different way. So if you'll do this with me today, I want to pray the prayer that we started out with. And if you can agree with me in your spirit, in your heart, and your mind, then do so. And if you need to talk to somebody today, I'm around. Uh, others are around, elders, uh, folks that you know can hear you. Let's do community together. Let's live uh, not as hypocrites, not as secretive lives, but in opus, beautiful messes that we are. So let me read this to you. You evoke in us responses to your hidden rule, and we sing your praises. We worship and adore you. We give our lives over to you in gratitude and in obedience as we are able. You evoke in us responses toward our neighbor. Your great care for us both causes us to care for the world. And we resolve to talk the talk. To speak the news of your goodness. To speak the good news of your mercy. To speak the bad news of your impatience in the face of mockery. You evoke in us response toward our neighbors. And we resolve to walk the walk not to petition your work before we've done our own work not to ask you for what we may do amongst ourselves can do of mercy of compassion of forgiveness peace and justice and we mark these resolves in troubled circumstance because our talk is double tongued because our walk is double minded one step towards you two steps back in fear one utterance towards you two utterances reneging in duplicity and given all of that we sing your praise we worship and adore you. We give our lives over to you in gratitude and obedience as we are able. And everyone says Amen. Be blessed.